Maybe Christmas brings out the generosity in us. Or maybe it awakens the sweet tooth we all seem to have. Yeah, I know a rare few don't have this problem, of which I know nothing. Nothing! For some, it is more fun to get a gift of homemade candies. And for some others of us, it is at least as much fun to make and to give. So, clean off the counter, it's candy making time. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 118. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, folks. Andrea here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Today is a solo episode about, well... Some candy, not all candy. There's a lot. When I was a kid, my dad used to make fudge for Christmas. Cookies too, but fudge was the thing I remember. Peanut butter fudge was my favorite of his, and, well, pretty much anyone who makes fudge. Murdoch's Fudge on Mackinac Island in Michigan was the best place I remember to get fudge, and watching the fudge get scraped, now I know it's called agitated, and turned and folded, well, that was a real treat. I am not a confectioner. I can make these things that I'm going to talk about, and I can make them at home, and I have made them for restaurants. Restaurant confectionering and confectionery confectionering are not the same standard. My aim is to offer you home cooks, or any skill level, Recipes and Procedures for Success Success in making and giving and eating and enjoying, not opening a confectionery. To get to that end, I'm going to start with some egghead information. The reason is to give you a good base of knowledge and understand what the product is. Remember Bob Ross and his happy little clouds? Bob could paint, but he also wanted you to be able to paint, too. You might be thinking, I can't do candy. You may be wondering, how can those fabulous, fancy treats be made by you? I'm going to say something you may not like. Your candy won't be the same as the professional confectioner. It doesn't need to be. For our confections, we are using sugar and heat and liquid and, in some cases, a fat. A change of one thing, time or temperature, changes our final product in sometimes drastic ways. Those changes may be intended or may not be intended. I want to cover some items that I've written about on the blog and some that seem Christmas classics. I want to cover caramel sauce fudge, marshmallows, brittle, pecan pralines, and truffles. So grab a cuppa. Caramel sauce. Caramel sauce is, first, a caramel. So what does that mean? Sugar cooked long enough will brown. Now, that is a caramel which will become very hard 
And to make it sauce or even something to chew, we need to do something to make it soft and, in our case, pourable. We do that with fat. In this case, butter and heavy cream. Now, if, yes, yeah, heavy cream is roughly 40% fat, so 60% water. There's protein in there, which as it happens is going to be valuable to us for the browning, but the, we want the moisture content to come out through boiling and that fat part to remain, and that's going to help create our sauce. Now, I'll put the link for this sauce on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 118. Caramel sauce is a good way to learn to understand what heat does to sugar and what flavors that can create. When we cook sugar, Start with a stainless steel pan. Enamel will work, probably. Check your brand's specifications. Copper is grand, but has one problem. Two. Two problems. The first is cost. It's very expensive. The second is, it is very difficult to determine the color of the cooking sugar. For caramel sauce, the stainless steel pan reveals the color easily. Caramel sauce also relies less on the specifics of temperature and more on color. The deeper the red of the sugar, the deeper the color and flavor of the finished caramel sauce. That part makes sense. I like a hazelnut shell color on my caramel sauce. It also has some really deep, rich flavors, some of it bordering on bitter, but that's a characteristic that I like, and of course, the sweet. Now, I've read that caramelized sugar develops some 100 flavor profiles. That's a lot of flavors. As the sugar gets darker, the moisture evaporation makes the finished sauce thicker, which I find is a benefit. One last note also mentioned on the recipe. Cooking sugar into which a liquid, heavy cream in this case, is added is an impressive rapid transfer of heat. The cream will boil quickly. Cream tends to overflow the pot, so high-walled pots for caramel sauce are preferred to, say, saute pans. Have a whisk candy and hot mitt just in case for the steam. Whisk the caramel sauce rapidly to keep this bubbles down and as the heat reaches boiling so as, it com as it's coming down from whatever it was because we're not using a thermometer to 212 the things in the pot will begin to settle down the sense of urgency is to spare a burny spilly mess which may burn you the ratio for the recipe on the blog is just over two cups of sugar to three cups of cream and four ounces of butter. Those ingredients, cooked as instructed, make sauce. You are an astute listener, and you may ask yourself, well, what if I add less cream? And you may tell yourself, that makes caramel candy. It does. The yummy kind you can eat and share, or eat. I'll put a PDF of this recipe, one from my dad's binder of candy recipes, on the show notes page. Now, on to the cooked sugar treats. 
A note about sugar, again, and heat. Cooked sugar is hot, really, really hot, and it burns, and it keeps burning. You might think I'm trying to scare you out of making candy. I'm letting you know there's a danger. The danger exists, but it's easy to avoid. Fudge. I've mentioned my personal fondness for fudge. I've had really great fudge and less than really great fudge. Some versions aren't fudge at all based on what fudge is by the rules of cooking sugar. I've read versions for fudge which read microwave sweetened condensed milk, add some other ingredients, pan it, cool it, cut it, and it's fudge-ish. Similar cheats involve a jar of marshmallow whip and more microwaved stuff. The cook snob in me disapproves of such things, and for my standards, I have made less than perfect fudge following the right way. The part of me that encourages you to make anything and gain the confidence in the process can't find fault with these microwave methods. If the choice is make it, quote-unquote, the right way, over not making it at all, then the choice is clear. Make it. I am going to go over some of the science, yes, I know, involved in fudge and brittles. Like Julia Child was quoted in the last episode, she wants to know why. I want to know why. The book I'm referencing is Chocolates and Confections by Peter Gueling, and I apologize if I butchered his name, who is a certified master baker. As a book, it's pretty technical. It's also pretty, pretty effing amazing. The intended audience is the pastry chef or the connoisseur. Fudge has a cousin, which is fondant. Yes, the kind on the outside of the cake, but also, and better, the kind inside the peppermint patty. Both of these, despite how they feel in your mouth, both of these being fudge and fondant, are sugar crystals surrounded by a saturated syrup. Remember back to chemistry class? Saturated simply means that the water holding the dissolved sugar can hold no more of it, or it will form a crystal. If you have ever cooked sugar and water together, and then boom, there's this spider web of sugar crystal forms, that's a saturated syrup. Fudge and fondant are crystalline sugar confections, but the crystals are so small, we can't detect them when we eat them. The microwave shortcuts are intended to circumvent the possible grainy fudge by eliminating making a syrup in the first place. One tip for making the classic or proper, not judging, fudge is, as the chef writes, salt should be added at the end of cooking as it can inhibit the formation of crystals, a necessary function of fudge. Salt added when the fudge is cooling may not dissolve, leaving salty bits. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it does get in the way of that smooth texture. For the confectioner, fudge is improved by all that folding you see on marble slabs, and, as it happens, 
it's necessary. The ruling writes, quote, agitation is one of the most critical steps in the fondant slash fudge technique to create a smooth texture to the finished product, end quote. Most home-sized fudged batches will fit in the bowl of a stand mixer. As it happens, that can provide the necessary agitation needed to create the smooth texture of those sugar crystals. And again, this is a step omitted by the microwave versions. Walter Baker of Baker's Chocolate put out a baking booklet in 1932. The recipe for fudge reads, to cool it to lukewarm, identified as 110 degrees Fahrenheit, and paddle it until it thickens and loses its gloss, then pan it and cool. There's a bit more science when discussing adding flavors. Acidic flavors, fruit purees are the most common, change how the sugar crystallizes and can interfere with proper setting. It is best, then, to add peanut butter or fresh purees or extracts on top of the fudge as it cools, and then work it in during the agitation. There is a wide variety of fudge recipes on the interwebs. Pick an author you know and trust. As a brand, Food Network seems pretty reliable, which means the recipes work. Brittle. The U.S. South is said to be the birthplace of peanut butter. Since it is cooked sugar, it is technically a caramel, but with a twist. Baking soda is added to brittles. Not all brittles, but I'm going to get there in a minute. Baking soda aerates the caramel, making it appear a bit cloudy, but that also makes it easier to bite. Now, remember, it's simple. We know baking soda is the thing that makes our muffins and our sweet bread rise up. So it's making a gas. The same thing's happening in the brittle. It's just happening a lot faster and a lot quicker, which sounds like the same thing. Those brittles, with or without the baking soda, may also be pulled as they cool to develop a really cool lacy effect between the nuts which also makes eating a little bit easier because it breaks into smaller pieces. You're not left with this shard hanging out of your face. The presence of the nut or the seed, sesame seed being the most popular, in that nut is protein. And that is important for the Maillard reaction of browning. Nerd alert! More science. The Maillard reaction is caramelization achieved through heat but without searing. For a better explanation, this is what Grueling wrote, quote, When exposed to heat, the amino acids found in proteins combine with various sugars to create compounds with brown colors and with flavors that may be described largely as roasted or as caramel, end quote. Chef also explains that some sugars are better than others, for the Maillard reaction, and writes, quote, These sugars include lactose, found in dairy products, dextrose and fructose, found in invert sugars, and some of the sugars found in glucose syrup, end quote. That's enough to make you stop baking. 
What that means is caramelization can happen in a liquid, and the protein in peanuts and in the milk salads is the thing that makes that caramelization happen and continue to happen as the thing cools down. So why does this matter? More milk solids or more peanuts makes deeper flavor. Slower cooked sugar develops deeper, richer flavors where quickly cooked sugars without dairy or nuts retain its, retain the sugar's clarity. So think about candy canes or, uh, I don't know if they still make this thing. Well, the, um, um, I think about glass, candy glass. That may not be a cooked product after all, um, but that was a popular thing as a kid. But but candy canes is cooked. But it's cooked quickly. Yes, they add a little bit of color to it, but imagine what that white color would look like if it was brown to begin with. So that's cooked rapidly to prevent browning from happening, and also there's nothing in there to contribute to the Maillard reaction. For the home cook, this knowledge can help you get a bit more flavor and texture from your confections and help you understand where troubles lie. For the confectioner, it's a way to tease out a better product by pushing the limits. So how does this apply to our brittle? I mentioned that grueling wrote glucose. That's not generally something you find in your Fortune 100 grocery store. Luckily for the home baker, Corn syrup works. Honey works too, but that changes the flavor, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. For our meager amounts of product, clear corn syrup is good. Grueling's basic, brittle procedure is cook the sugar and water first. Add the glucose and then the peanuts, stirring constantly. When 311 degrees is reached, remove the pan Add the butter, vanilla, salt, and baking soda, and stir. Now, just like with the caramel sauce, we want to have a deeper pan than shallow, because once that baking soda hits, it's going to foam up a lot. Stir, 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 and pour it out onto a marble slab to cool and then to be broken. But, yeah, right, marble slab. No problem. Sometimes your counters are, now these days, I have no idea if concrete counters are amenable to heat. I have no idea. Check with whoever made that. Um, a lot of us have granite or marble counters. Some of them are fake. I don't know how you tell. But all that aside, a sheet pan's fine. A lightly buttered sheet pan, and you're good to go. Home cookbooks may vary on this procedure. One particular recipe added the peanuts at the very end, removing any chance of that mired reaction from happening and also eliminating any depth of flavor from the peanuts. Salt at the end matters for it may cause the brittle to be soft and not firm like it should be. For the home cook making a treat intended to be consumed almost immediately, this matters less than a confectioner's product bound beyond the shelf some while. As you develop skills with brittle, you may rely less on the thermometer and push that final point a bit, seeking a deeper color and flavor. So here's a little twist 
and fudge. The praline. Fans of New Orleans will know that diagonally across the street from Café du Monde is the confectioner shop Aunt Sally. While she sells many things, the one I am most fond of is the pecan praline. The spelling is the same as the classic hazelnut praline, but is far from the same confection. Praline is a more coarse crystalline candy, showing some of the cloudiness of a brittle and the texture of an overcooked fudge. Unlike fudge, the praline's crystalline texture is revealed upon eating. Pralines are more delicate than fudge, mostly for their thin size. They are best when eaten within a few days, and I find myself nearly incapable of resisting more. As with caramel sauce, pralines are a bit forgiving. One note to share. The consistency of the first spoonful will not be the same as the last. Since the chemical reaction continues, the last bits, usually only candy as the, praline, the, the pecans are gone, are much more crystalline than the first. And that's how it goes, and there, be, there may be a way the confectioner prevents that. They are good treats as they are. Grind them up and add them to peanut butter or butter or sprinkle them between cake layers or melt them in hot chocolate or anything else you can imagine to do with them because while they aren't aesthetically pleasing, they are quite delicious. This recipe is on the blog and will be linked on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 118. Marshmallows. Homemade marshmallows bear little resemblance to the Ghostbuster terror or even those things you buy in the store. Those are extruded and, well, frankly, not really very yummy. Homemade marshmallows are, however, wonderful things. Once you get your feet under you, you can work on making them a bit more firm for a chewier treat. As with all confections, the difference is water, content, and the syrup. As it happens, to get into those chewy, pulley marshmallows, we might need some specialized ingredients. For homemade, you can do today, this is easy. As with the praline recipe, this will be linked on the show notes page. Marshmallows, as presented on the show notes page, will be an egg white foam made stable by adding hot sugar syrup and bloomed melted gelatin. A stand mixer with planetary motion is necessary for marshmallows. Powdered gelatin from the grocery store works just fine here. That's what I use here. Pastry chefs sometimes use gelatin sheets, which are time savers, but are also expensive. And if you're not making a lot of candy or dessert mousses, there is little need to spend currency on so specialized an item. Powdered gelatin needs to be gently sprinkled on the surface of the cold water. Now, it might get a little blobby. Now, work to avoid dumping it in. <laughs> I'm not laughing at you. It's, it, 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 mistakes happen, and so that's, but what the, the gelatin... Um, so when the gelatin hits the water, it's going to start to absorb the water almost immediately. And if a, if a big, just 
blob hits the water, the problem is that the gelatin granules on the outside of that blob will absorb the water and then, well, they'll become gelatin. And there's no way to undo that blob unless you heat it. Now, the problem here lies that every time, it's like the hydra, every time you split the gelatin blob, you can't go faster than the water as the thing splits. So every time you're splitting it, you're just making two blobs. And you, it's just, it becomes a real frustration. So it's easiest to avoid the frustration by gently sprinkling on top the powdered gelatin onto the prescribed amount of water. Now, sometimes the amount of gelatin will start to look like too much for the small amount of water you have. Now, it is advisable not to change the amount of water because the recipe depends on that set amount of water for what it is the gelatin is going to hold. So a little bit of patience here and just sprinkle, 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 sprinkle. And finally, eventually, the water will come up through all of that gelatin to bloom it. That's the word in the pastry and confessional world. The gelatin is bloomed. Now... We let, and, and that may take five or ten minutes. Once that happens, now it can be melted slowly over a double boiler. So you have a little little bowl. You can put it into a little saute pan of of, uh, of water, simmering water, and just let that gelatin. So if, it's like when you hold jello in your well, nobody does that. Hold jello in your hands, it starts to melt. That's what we're doing in the bowl. We're just letting this gelatin turn from a salad into a liquid because we need that. And despite what you see on some YouTube videos, don't stir the gelatin into the water. Let it bloom. Once we get our gelatin melted, it's possible you'll see a couple of little teeny balls of gelatin goo there's nothing you can do about them because we've talked about why. That might happen. So in this case, we're going to, before we pour our not-too-hot gelatin into our final product, pour it through a tea strainer, which is that really fine mesh strainer, uh, to get all those little nasty bits out, and then we're good to go. You can flavor your marshmallow mix at the end of mixing with a few drops of the extract flavor you prefer. While the mixture is still warm, it plays very nicely, and you can pipe it into forms or molds. It plays nicely, but it does stick to everything. Getting it to do what you want may take patience and may require lowering your expectations to less than perfect. Or you can spread it out on a silicone-lined, buttered, silicone-lined uh, baking mat, and then use another silicone-lined or a buttered piece of parchment paper to push the marshmallow flat and even into your, uh, well, sheet pan probably. Or be creative, but whatever you put it in, you've got to butter the sides so you can get it out. An offset spatula also works 
But remember, it needs to be buttered because marshmallow sticks to everything. Once you have your marshmallow in the, if you're doing a big slab of it, once you have it into your uh, pan, lightly dust the top with the dry version of your tea strainer with a little mix of 50-50 mix of powdered sugar and cornstarch. Let that thing sand pretty much overnight. And don't refrigerate it and don't cover it. If you've got furry friends, find a place where they can get to it. There's a bit more detail about this part on the recipe page. So let's take a moment out for a word from Jake about his Tasting Anarchy podcast. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. So far, that feels like it's been a lot of treats. I went through all that just to tell you about this. Truffles. There is no sugar saturation crystal mesh network here, but there are levels. We can go from, yeah, that's good, to holy moly, how did you do that? That's amazing. The difference here is quality of ingredients and time on the clock. Although time from the plant would be interesting. For world-class truffle filling or truffles, Hershey's chocolate chips aren't going to get you there. They work, but they're not the best you can have. Even that lint bar from the grocery store is passable. For top-shelf truffles, you need top-shelf chocolate. Now, here's one of those places where you might say, but Danny boy... I can't afford $20 a pound chocolate. I get it. Make the best truffles you can with the best chocolate you can afford to buy. And the love you put into that makes the difference. And anyone who complains gets coal next year. Now you might be thinking, why are you telling me this if I can't make the best? Because if you follow the procedure, your truffles will be better than almost anything that's out there, which includes those horrible Godiva truffles. Yeah, I said that. Chocolate is basically dry cocoa powder suspended in a cocoa butter mass. Cocoa butter is fat. Now, there's more going on, but functionally, that's what we're looking at. That's one reason melted chocolate gets lumpy. It's called seizing. When water lands into it, the, those dry cocoa um, specks grab out of the water, push out the fat, and now it's, a, it's just a big mess. There's a way to fix it, but we can't make truffles with it. For perfect truffle filling, heat one cup of cream and 18 ounces of chocolate in separate containers, each to 140 degrees. Now, you may say to yourself, how do I know what the temperature is? For the cream, an instant read thermometer is fine. For the chocolate, one of those little laser thermometers is fine. An instant read thermometer will be fine. 
they make a very, very fancy uh, chocolate tempering thermometer, which you don't need to buy. It, it has a very, very limited range, but it also would work. Combine these two separately heated ingredients into the bowl of a stand mixer and paddle slowly for 10 minutes. Transfer this mix to a container large enough to hold it with a snap top top and refrigerate for at least 12 hours. Since the cream will dilute the intensity of the chocolate, a higher percentage of cocoa mass will have a stronger flavor when finished. Now, if you remember that lint bar you see at your grocery store, some of them, if they aren't filled, will have a number on there. 60, 72, 85, some of I doubt you can find 90s, but maybe. The higher that number means the higher the ratio percentage of cocoa mass, the powdery stuff, is in the chocolate. The more of it, the more bitter the chocolate is. Because we're diluting flavor a bit by adding cream to it, a, a medium bitter is going to come back with almost no bitter at all, which isn't a bad thing or a good thing. It's just the thing. And depending on what you want to serve people, that's an important thing to know. Shaping truffles is, isn't hard, but you, you, you need to have cold thoughts because the chocolate's not going to want your warm hands. Sometimes a bowl of ice or something where you can put your hands on the outside so your hands aren't getting wet to keep them cold or help keep them cold to help shape the truffles. Um, about the size round, say, like if you imagined a nickel as a sphere instead of a disc, truffles about that size. So your, 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 your breakfast spoon, your teaspoon from your dinner, your service set, Scoop out something like that and make them into balls. They do not need to be perfect because of the, hence the name. Truffles are supposed to look a little bit like the fungus that comes out of the ground, not perfectly round like you get from those stores in the mall. Put those on a tray, refrigerate them again to keep them cold, and either cover them in cocoa powder, which is to me the classic way to do it, or you can dip them into chocolate. Dipping truffles, or any treat, into chocolate is a bit of a chore if you're using some of those good chocolates on the outside that you put on the inside. Uh, the chocolate needs to be tempered. What that means is you have to heat the chocolate to a specific temperature, and, and that changes from manufacturer. But if I remember correctly, it's about 128 degrees, then cool it down to, I think, uh, like 108 degrees, then reheat it back to 112 degrees. The, the purpose of all that is the, the various kinds of fats need to be all unified in their set point. So you make them all the same hot, you make them all the same cool, bring them all back up a little bit. Now, if you've done this well, when you coat whatever you're coating, raspberries, strawberries, uh, your truffles, if you're making little filigree stencils, the chocolate will snap like the Hershey bar will snap. Hershey's is, it's not brilliant chocolate, 
but they've mastered consistency. And when you buy a bar and break it, it snaps. And that's the thing that we want from tempered chocolate. The other thing we want from tempered chocolate is to not to see that little, like, dusty brown gray stuff. It's not poison. It won't kill you. It's just bloom. It's visually unattractive. And it's frustrating to have that appear when you spend all that time tempering some chocolate. The other thing about dipping truffles particularly is if they are too cold, which would be in this case from the freezer or a really, really cold refrigerator, and they are too big, too big would be, say, golf ball size or maybe even imagine uh, a quarter as a sphere, that can be a little bit on the big side for a truffle being dipped in chocolate because it has shrunken in its size. Remember, cold things shrink. As it comes higher in temperature from, say, 0 or 20 to 40 or 50 or 60, it's going to expand. And what that means is it's going to crack its chocolate exterior. And then there's the possibility the inside will leak to the outside. And now we've just made a big mess. So, we need to go back to those Hershey chips for a minute. Or um, give, um, oh, gee whiz, that San Francisco company. Um, I cannot remember the name of it. Anyway, chips are already tempered. All chocolate you buy is already tempered. But the chips have something else in them that when you melt them nice and slow over double boiler, and get them to a consistency where you can dip your truffles nicely. And they make fancy tools for this. You don't need to buy them. Use your dinner fork is just fine. It's going to be harder to get them out than you think it should be. Uh, use two dinner forks if you need to. And lift them out. Work. You need to have a tight station. Tight meaning everything next to each other. So you've got your melted chocolate over a barely warm pot of water. Maybe you have a towel over that to hold the bowl to make sure it doesn't fall in. Um, then to either to your left or your right, depending on which way you work, you're lifting your chocolate truffles out, putting them on either. Uh, I would recommend putting them on parchment paper. You may see some places tell you put them on a grated cooling rack, a wire cooling rack. Sounds like a great idea until there's too much chocolate on the bottom of the rack and you can't get your truffle off without breaking all of the coating you just put on. Use parchment paper or a silicone mat. Let them cool in the refrigerator. Don't freeze them until the chocolate sets and then you're ready to go. You, If you have the patience and the inclination to garnish them with melted white chocolate or some other things, well, that, that'd be great. That's fine. It's not necessary. One more note about dipping truffles. Try to avoid adding any extra fat to your chocolate. If you must, and you mustn't, try to use only cocoa butter. Any added fat can create the effect called eutectic which means the combined fats in the chocolate melt at a lower than expected point. That's fine and necessary 
for melt-away candies, not at all useful for coating truffles. When you're melting your chips for the outside of the truffles, what we want to avoid here is too hot. Too hot to chocolate is a pretty low bar. So um, don't set your water on the boil. Don't even set it on the medium. Put it on low-ish and wait for that. And, and as the chocolate in the bowl above the water starts getting that steam there, one of the things that's happening is you've, you've created a teeny pressure cooker. So the amount of steam increases, that forces the heat up, which melts your chocolate faster. Chocolate is a bizarre thing in that it's kind of like a steak. I don't know. <laughs> Not like that. It makes its own heat. It will carry its own heat and generate a few more degrees, even after you take it off of the uh, simmering water. Now, that can be a problem if it gets to be too hot. You put your truffle in it, and your truffle will start to melt. That is, regrettably, a risk, and, well, it's an aggravating one, I can tell you from experience. So take your time heating your chocolate up. Too hot, measure that by taking the back of a spoon, a clean spoon, put it in the chocolate, and touch the, the bottom of your upper lip. And if, you, if it's warm to your upper lip, then you're fine. If it burns you, that's too, well, it's too hot for you and much too hot for the chocolate. So go slow with this. It, it's, it takes far less time to heat chocolate one degree than it takes to cool chocolate one degree. It is just agonizingly slow and just a lot of frustration and it's easy to avoid. Take your time. You can find a lot of video help on the interwebs for what to do with chocolate and things after you've sort of gotten this whole melting, dipping chocolate thing underway. Now, you can go back to those salted caramels get some pecans and you can make your homemade turtles. You can learn to candy and caramelize orange peel, which is really, really easy to do. It's a little bit, it's a little knife work, but so what? Man, those things are nice. They're really impressive. They taste great. And people will be, how did you do this? Oh, well, you know, something I threw together. But once you get some of these things down, you can even drizzle chocolate on your pralines or on your brittle. You can drizzle chocolate on top of your fudge. <laughs> There's just so much more that can be done with some of these basic skills. Now, we didn't get into candy canes because that's, well, frankly, I've never made candy canes. So I guess I'll do that for next year. I'll make candy canes. We'll talk about that next year. Um, a lot of the ideas here work for uh, nougat, seafoam, Toffee, um, taffy, all of that is going to be very similar in what we've talked about for fudge and brittle and marshmallows and pralines. There's just some of these basic things, and they are basic uh, for you know pastry chefs, but they're easy to do. And my caveat at the beginning for the snob was to don't be the snob if you find that the the condensed milk version in the microwave 
makes a product that you're happy with and the people who receive it are thrilled to get it, wow. That's a heck of a thing. Thrilled to get food is a really good place to be. And there's no reason to change that unless you wish to grow your skills. And then the only thing you have to do is send me pictures. All right, folks, that's going to do it. That's a lot. I know. I'll have the links for the recipes and the PDF on the show notes page, as well as the link for the confectioner's book if you want to take a deep dive into this. If you know or are someone who likes baking and wants to take home baking another step up, check out my affiliate, Kiko's Cakes. Kiko makes pastry easy with excellent video instruction, and it's excellent because I've watched him, and I've done them, I've made some of his things, and they work. He just came out with the Bouche de Noël video, too. Use my link for a digital Christmas gift you give with no delivery service delays. Visit culinarylibertarian.com slash Kiko's Cakes. And speaking of delayed deliveries, my cookbook, Cooking for Comfort, One Pot Meals You Can Make, is available as a Kindle book. Did you know you can read Kindle books on your desktop or tablet? That makes it very easy to follow the recipe. Visit culinarylibertarian.com slash cookingforcomfort to find the link. Please share this episode on your social media feeds and share it to anyone who likes candy. Also, please rate and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.